Good morning. My name is Aubrey. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here. And what we're doing this morning in the sermon is the fourth sermon in a series of sermons. Uh, the title of the series is Money and the Kingdom of God. And so it's interesting, our gospel reading, for example, that Eric read to us. John the Baptist is preaching this sermon and um, a whole bunch of people at the end of it say, what do we do? He's preaching the sermon that the Messiah has come and we need to prepare his way. And then a group, a lot of people say, well, what should we do? And his response to every single one of them is economic, economic repentance. He says to the like regular old crowds, um, the way you handle your assets, your clothing and your food, um, you need to repent of the way you've been handling it. Then he says to the tax collectors, there's a way you've been dealing with money that you need to change. And then when he talks to the soldiers, and this is really striking, of all the things he could talk to Roman soldiers about, he picks an economic thing to talk about. And what we've been seeing throughout the series is that God is king. And as king, he has a kingdom. And that kingdom has its economic ways. And when we come into the kingdom of God, we need to come in with all of our lives. And we need to learn to live according to his kingdom in every area, including economics. This morning, we're going to look in particular about the relationship of our work to our money and to God's kingdom. How does our work and the money that we generate at work, what, what does this have to do with God's kingdom? And what does God's kingdom have to do with this? So if you brought a copy of the Bible, and I hope that you did, find Ephesians chapter 4, our New Testament reading that I think Donna read, read this. Was it you, Donna? Yeah. Ephesians chapter 4. Notice in the middle of all of these ways that we need to be kind and we need to be good and we need to be faithful, in the middle of all of these ways is how we need to relate to work. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So apparently... There were thieves in Ephesus who became Christians. And Paul is saying, okay, you had a career. You had a job. It wasn't a good job. It wasn't good work. You need to work different now. And notice what he says about how he needs to work. And, and what he says to them provides a framework for us today to look at our own work. He says three things, basically. Good work is work that contributes something to the community. Number two, good work is work that provides enough so that our needs are met. And number three, good work is work that provides even more than that so that we can share with those in need. So three kind of frameworks when it comes to work and money in the kingdom of God. First of all, that first one, a basic reason for us to work is so that we can contribute something good to our community. 
So this is a really simple thing to, to reflect on. As you're thinking about what kind of job do I want to have or what kind of job do I want to do, a good starting place is not how much money does it make. That comes up later. But a good starting place is how can I contribute to my community? Good work is work that provides a good thing to its community. Now, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Here's another thing. A second reason that we work is to provide for ourselves and our families. Flip over the three books in the Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Notice verse 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 11. Aspire to live quietly. A friend of mine says, we, we should seek obscurity. That that's a good way to live. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So here's another idea, this idea that part of the purpose of work is so that we're not dependent on others. So good work is work that contributes good to the community, number one. Number two, it's work that provides enough so that we're not dependent on others. And number three, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone. So a third principle here is that good work is not only good for the community and provides enough for us, but it also provides enough for us to share with others. So this is his basic teaching on work to thieves, trying to get them to think about their work differently. Now, here's a question, though. Do you think he's talking to thieves? Or do you think he's talking to people who should let thieves work? See, I grew up thinking this was quit your stealing and get a job. But what if he's talking to the community and he's saying, let the ex-thieves work. Let them labor. I mean, read the passage again. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor. It could be read this other way, right? So, I mean, this is easy. If you're a thief, quit it and get a kind of job that does these three things. But to those of you who are not thieves, let the thieves work. Let them labor. And what kind of work should we let them do? What kind of work should we let felons do? What kind of work should we let people who are coming out of jail do? It needs to be good work, work that contributes good to the community, work that earns them enough to meet their needs and enough that they can help others. Now, are we doing that? Does our society do that? Does our community let ex-thieves work? Well, that's an interesting question, and it's hard to nail down. Um, In one multi-city study done in in 2007 and 2008, 60% of employers in America said they would probably not or definitely not hire someone with a criminal record. 
Now, I'm not saying that they're malicious. I'm not talking about their motives. It's, it's very complicated with regard to issue, issues like insurance and education and liability and infrastructure. I'm, I'm not trying to accuse people of, of bad motives. I'm just trying to say there is a group of people in America and in our community that we need to hear Ephesians 4.28 saying, let them work. One recent study has shown that a criminal conviction reduces the likelihood of getting a job callback by 50% for white people and 66% for a black applicant. So we know that generally speaking here in America, time in prison reduces your subsequent annual earnings by 50% adding up to a lifetime average loss of $500,000. Even a misdemeanor in America, on average, slashes your annual earnings by 15%. So when Ephesians 4.28 tells us, let the thief who no longer steals labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, we need to hear that. We need to reflect on that, and we need to think about our community. We need to be unsatisfied with the way our criminal justice system functions as a poverty trap that prevents people from achieving prosperity and sets up future generations for material deprivation and undermines the well-being of communities. If you're incarcerated in the United States, when you get out of jail, the initial average negative impact on your wages is a loss of 10 to 20%. And then as time goes by, it rises to 50%. And yes, again, there are multiple complicated factors for all of these statistics, but study after study has proven that there are massive hidden costs to mass incarceration. A criminal record is almost always permanent and public, and it causes economic hardship for the person and their families. And this verse says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor. Our addiction to incarceration and its impact on a person's wages is something that we've got to hold in one hand as we read this passage. But, but, but it's not only former offenders who are struggling to make enough money in our nation, in our state. It's also minorities, those for whom our education system has failed, the Native American population in America, people who grow up in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. All of these are groups who struggle to find jobs that pay wages high enough to allow them to achieve financial stability. What about Harrisonburg in particular? See, we, we have got to read, I think it was Spurgeon maybe who said, read the Bible in one, with, read your Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another hand. We've got to stop reading verses like this and only thinking, well, I've never been in jail and I'm, I know if I ever stole, I'd quit. Like, we've got to think about our community. These are, these are plural passages. Let we we need to do this stuff. So what about Harrisonburg? Well, the, the best source of data on Harrisonburg is something called the Alice Report. If you're not familiar with it, you can just type it in. You can download it, and you can learn about the social safety net of our city. 
Harrisonburg has a low unemployment rate, 3.5%. It's good. But it has a very high underemployment rate. 23% of the residents of Harrisonburg, this doesn't count out-of-town college students, 23% of our residents live at or below poverty level. Another 38% live below the threshold for economic viability. 61% of the households of Harrisonburg live below the level of economic viability. 61%. All right, enough with the statistics. Here's the point. What I'm saying is that the economic and social systems of our world are broken in ways that often put particular groups of people at disadvantage when it comes to work. And in a world that's been broken by the fall, we must recognize that some, not all, but some people struggle with unemployment, not because they've sinned, but because they've been sinned against. And yes, there are people who don't want to work. In fact, we could have gone on to 2 Thessalonians where it says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And yes, if you're able to work and you don't want to work and you just don't work, we should be willing to let you not eat. But there are also these other groups of people in Scripture that Scripture deals with that we need to let them work. Now, what I'm talking about is what are we responsible to do when work doesn't work? The good news is the Bible talks a lot about this. Our Old Testament passage, please turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And let's notice what God, how he gives us some really creative and wise instructions for what to do for groups of people for whom work doesn't work. Deuteronomy chapter 24, the gleaning laws of the Old Testament, gleaning laws. Now, think of this as an HR manual that Yahweh wrote for his people. And notice what he says in this HR manual. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. He's writing this to a farm. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field. Now, in most HR manuals today, if it says when you're doing your work and you overlooked part of it, what do you think comes after the comma? Go back, right? When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. That the Lord your God, Yahweh, may bless you in all the work of your hands. You want God to bless you in your work? You have to leave some profit on the table. Now, this is a remarkable thing. I mean, in the Old Testament, God is requiring Israelite landowners to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that the most vulnerable people in the land could provide for themselves by harvesting the leftovers. And once we remember that Israel was an agrarian economy, we realize this covered basically every businessman in Israel. This is radical. Imagine what, it, what these gleaning laws required for a landowner. Even though he had taken all the responsibility for the work and all the responsibility for investment, 
he wasn't allowed to take all the prophets. God called him instead to use this basic thing that happens in every harvest where you overlook something. It's a basic thing that goes on. And God said, let's use that basic thing for you to create opportunities for work for the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor. Now, it's tricky, isn't it? Because we're not Middle Eastern farmers in a Bronze Age agrarian society. So there are serious differences between this passage and our lives today. But we need to think from this passage into our lives today. This is the kind of passage that Paul was drawing down on when he said, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work. Do you see how it came right out of this imaginary framework? Let him work. Three principles I think that we can take out of the gleaning laws as we're thinking about our own work lives, our own ways of generating income, and how it relates to our community. Number one, the gleaning laws provided work for the marginalized, but it required them to work for it. I'm sure all of us have heard the serious critique of some welfare programs that undermine the dignity of the poor, diminish their capacity, create unhealthy dependency. When we look at these gleaning laws, when we look at Ephesians, we see that Part of the job of those with power is to provide opportunities for good work. Second principle, the gleaning laws required Israelite business owners to create work by sacrificially leaving profits on the table. Now think about how this challenges both the left and the right in our current political environment. In God's kingdom, the economic tool that ensured each person had access to at least their daily bread was neither a robust economy nor a redistributionist government policy. It was about the local, the local economic units. And just remember, when you read rules for farmers in the Old Testament, you need to think you. Rules for farmers was rules for workers in the job that everybody had. Part of the amazing thing going on here is the third principle. The gleaning laws made each and every family the place where economic justice started. It's your family. So when we read these gleaning laws, we need to remember that all of us are economic units. We hire people. We pay waiters and waitresses. We pay babysitters. We pay mechanics. We, we pay people for our food. All of us are employers. Every one of us. And it's unfair to take a passage like this and only aim at the businesses when actually the passage is aiming lower than that. It's aiming at every family unit that every one of us is responsible to think about our own life as an economic engine. And how am I leaving profit on the table in ways that gives those who don't have access to gainful employment access to gainful employment? 
Some of us might consider stopping mowing our yards because we could leave that profit on the table for a group that needs to mow yards. And some of you, in order to do that, you're going to have to make your dad roll over in his grave because you were raised to mow a yard because a real man mows a yard. But do you see how this passage right here says, look, find a way in your life that you can leave some of the profit on the table in order to generate opportunities for everyone. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him work, honest work. In our previous sermons in this series, we've seen that over and over, God is calling us to bend our economic lives toward the community. To, to, to pay attention to the way our, 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 our economics are leading us into the, the, the communities that we live in. God calls his people to the local level to create opportunities for work, for the marginalized, so that they can provide for themselves through their own work. And in our city, in our church, there are amazing examples of this. There are these incredible examples of families and business owners in this city doing things that are really creative. And they give dignity and wisdom and generosity, and it's just mind-boggling. And every time we see that kind of move happening, that is an Easter moment. That is resurrection moment. That is the kingdom of God spreading through our city. And we need to find all of those places where that's happening. And we need to rejoice in them. And we need to give thanks that our, God's, that our God's kingdom is a good kingdom. And it opens up into all of our lives. Now look, for everyone in this room, for all of us, to take seriously what the Bible says about economics in these passages. To let them seek deep down into our hearts. Just think, have you ever paid anyone for anything? And if you have, here are some basic questions. Have I squeezed all of the profit out of my proverbial field? Have I treated people who work for me as labor costs to be controlled rather than humans to be cared for? Have I failed to treat people who work for me or people who make the stuff that I buy? Have I treated them with the dignity that belongs to an image bearer of God? Am I willing to buy stuff that's made by people who are being mistreated? Have I assumed that the only reason people couldn't find work was because they were lazy? Have I recognized that there are groups of people in the Bible that we have to open up doors for? Many people in the church in America have bought into an economic system in which, what, in which the things we do, the availability of work for marginalized groups, is not a moral issue. It's just an option for some people in their political life. But here, God clearly puts it on our radar in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that the availability of good work for marginalized people is a moral responsibility for those who are safe and secure. God calls his people to a kingdom, to a community, to build cities that are good places to live. In God's economic wisdom, 
our assets and profits and income or not ours to handle as we desire. They are gifts from God that come with the obligation to create space for people to work. In the places where you as an individual or your family or your business is doing that, give thanks to God. Rejoice in it. Recognize it. You're practicing the king's economy. Keep those things going. And in the places where you can find some creative ways to to make this even more prevalent, wouldn't it be amazing if the churches in a city determined that their success was when less than 61% of our city is living below, above the economic viability level? What if that was our report card? What if our report card as churches was pegged to if we're actually living out these commands in Scripture? A, B, C, D, F. How's the church of Harrisonburg doing? The church of Harrisonburg has lots of power. It has lots of businesses. It has lots of money. It has lots of influence. Let's pray.